Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. Impenitence is man's work. Repentance is God's work. What causes the angels to rejoice is one sinner who repents, and yet we do not praise God for our repentance. As we just sang, rather we praise God for the scorn heaped upon him by hypocrites. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that is the objective basis upon which we repent. Impenitence is man's work. Repentance is God's work. When we sin, it's our fault. When we turn back to God, it is by God's gracious work. Jesus tells two parables to illustrate this point. He tells three, but we'll see what we consider today. In the first parable of the lost sheep, shows us the problem we have as poor, miserable sinners. We get ourselves into the trouble we need to be rescued from, and so we see the agency of a sheep. Sheep are stupid, and we, like sheep, go astray. The second parable of the lost coin shows us the power we have as poor, sinful beings. The coin has no agency. At best, it can be shiny, but it doesn't do anything or contribute anything. We have no power to get ourselves out of the fix we're in, even if we're just an inch under the couch. The coin does nothing to get itself found. In both parables, Christ represents himself as the one who searches out the object of his love. He is the main character in both. The word repent simply means to turn or to change your mind. But in order for there to be a turning away from what is evil and harmful, there must be something that is good and beneficial to turn towards. Otherwise, we're just spinning. Repentance is not simply turning away from sin. It is also turning in faith and trust toward him who forgives us our sin. There's also no real turning from sin unless we we turn to him who takes our sin away. The Pharisees imagined that they could be their own saviors because they thought they could do the first part of repentance. And yet, even in their arrogance, they refused to spin. They turned to the law by which they stood in judgment of those who had judged themselves. They were their own saviors. They were liars. They saw sinners gathering around Jesus. Now, they weren't wrong. They saw tax collectors whose sin was obvious and offensive and also quite harmful to others. They saw adulterers and fornicators who had made a mockery of the beautiful and life-giving institution of marriage that we see assaulted today by vile and disgusting protesters and by those who lurk in the shadows. They saw sloppy drunks and wife-beaters and lazy fathers who didn't bother to teach their children how to be decent, God-fearing folks. They saw phony beggars who took advantage of mercy with no real gratitude or intent to get on their feet. They saw those whose lives and very existence were a scourge and stain on the good order of all that is worth defending. They saw what each of us would be dead right in identifying as the general trash of society that is sinful and unclean. And Jesus didn't argue with their assessment. And he won't argue with ours. There's nothing wrong with speaking out against these sins. Maybe not in such a flowery way. 
but we must identify them. We must even urge such wickedness to be punished. We should discourage such shameful behavior for the sake of our children at least, right? After all, we are to teach them to avoid these kinds of lifestyles. St. Paul says that he who does the things these people were publicly known to do don't inherit the kingdom of God. They go to hell. God insists the pastors be blameless and above reproach and that they run their households with honor precisely so that we as Christians might know what kind of outward life pleases God and is fitting for saints. God cares very much about public sin. He hates sin. Now, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they identified sin or even that they identified who it was who was committing these sins. The problem with the Pharisees and scribes is that they failed to identify the same problem within themselves and not discerning what they needed from God. Mercy. They despised God in the flesh for showing mercy. They thought their problem was external, and so they were satisfied with an external solution. And to boot, besides granting them eternal life, it gave them the honor and envy of their neighbors. But of course, their problem ran deeper, because repentance isn't merely turning away from something outside of us. Jesus says, that which defiles a man comes from deep within. Repentance is turning away from yourself. And you can't do that. You can't do that because you live in the flesh, and your flesh has desires, some noble, some wicked, but all tainted and laced with sin. And so it is acknowledging your own desire for the things that less disciplined sinners indulge in, sins that you aren't pub publicly excoriated for indulging in, but you know in your heart. It is knowing that we are all formed from the same lump of clay, that no temptation overcomes one that is not common to all. This is repentance. This is knowing that we are poor, miserable sinners, first by nature, and then also by thought, word, and deed. What filth are we able not to wear on our sleeves? And what sin do we make excuses for? Even think only of those who did not come when wisdom called. When the banquet was ready and those invited were too busy with noble things, very noble things, to come to. We heard about this all last week. All this from the previous chapter in St. Luke's Gospel. Who will accuse a man, to give a contemporary example, who would take his daughter out of town for a basketball tournament because she, he loves her and she loves basketball, who would accuse him that he has sinned even though it meant that they skipped church and that hearing the voice of Jesus was thereby firmly grounded and entrenched in his daughter's mind as second place to whatever pursuits she had in life? Who will accuse him? The master of the feast sure will. He will never taste of my supper. He will not turn. He won't even spin. Let him learn his sin. Let him see his sin abound and abound and abound if he will ever see grace abound much more. 
Last Sunday's lesson taught us about a very final judgment, though, didn't it? They will never taste my supper. But the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind from the streets and lanes of the city and the highways and hedges of the countryside recall all this from last week. These are the sinners who drew near, who said in their own hearts, I will never taste of his supper, who saw no worthiness in themselves, but only an invitation. All judgment is final. All sin is damning. The judgment Jesus saves us from is final judgment. The sin Jesus saves us from is damning sin. He calls the vile. He calls the respectable. Those who make excuses for their sin to present them as more respectable do not come. There's nothing worse that we can do than make excuses for our sin. But they are all called. Even those who make their home in the judgment they deserve because they will not judge themselves, they are called. Those who lay aside excuses and draw near to Jesus to hear him, who refuse to draw near to Jesus to hear him, they are called. But those who lay aside all their excuses receive from Jesus forgiveness of all their sins. We are all like sheep who have gone astray, but Christ seeks us. He seeks to help us. He does not rely on how we make him feel. Our sin offends him, to be sure. That's how he felt. If we want to know and consider how he felt as a real man, and we'll run with this feeling language. The eternal God, who hates sin, was in the flesh surrounded by sinners, protesting and mocking him for his command of righteousness. As a righteous man, he had more cause than any Pharisee to be grossed out and angered by the things that our hearts imagine and desire, even the ones masked by worldly respectability. But these are not the feelings Jesus consulted when glancing on us poor sinners. Rather, he consulted the word of God that teaches plainly the purpose for which he was sent. God sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. Sinners, not to condemn us, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And the word of God, which was his food and drink, gave him a more overwhelming feeling, if you will, than any disgust at our sin. Because the same word of God that condemns our sin is the word of God that appointed God's Son from eternity as the Christ and that promised from the beginning that he would rescue us by bearing our sin and by clothing us in his own innocence. What he felt was compassion. Compassion that swallows up all wrath. Jesus has compassion on sheep without a shepherd. And by compassion alone, he does not free us from our sins. Rather, it is the plan and action combined with his compassion. Jesus' compassion for for us was not a mere stirring within his heart. As a man, it was the eternal love that has always existed in the heart of God. And this love is the very essence of God. And this love was turned toward us. Moved by compassion that was first expressed to Adam and Eve, whom God clothed in the garden, Jesus sought for himself the penalty for our sins. He sought to take our place under the law and to bear God's wrath 
and so he came in our likeness. He sought to offer his holy life into death in order that our lives might be spared and our shame might be covered by what God is eternally pleased with. God is pleased with the obedient life of Jesus Christ, his son. His compassion for sinners did not ignore that other feeling, that feeling of anger and disgust towards sin. No, he took it fully into account. This feeling, too, we run with feelings, was not a mere human annoyance, like what we experience when someone does us wrong. It was the divine hatred of all sin. It is just as real as his love. God hates what is not pure love. But in compassion, Christ chose to bear that anger and disgust under the mighty hand of God on the cross. He who was God from eternity became nothing. He humbled himself not only to be seen with sinners, but to become the only sinner there is. As all shame and blame was piled on him, and as every angry glance from heaven was zeroed in on his sacred body and soul, so that for us, as sheep who have gone astray, on us, upon whom he had compassion, God would lay the iniquity of us all on him. This is where compassion brought him. That stirring in his human heart was the same longing from eternity to bring you back to himself. Divine compassion brought the Lord of glory to be made sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we are. We receive his righteousness because the one who ate and drank with sinners is also the one who ate bread, the bread of sorrow, and drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And this one, by suffering and dying for you, revealed God's love by bearing his hatred. Which is much greater than whatever hatred you think you have, whatever is destroying what is good all around us. The sin in this world, God came to bear it. And you know this because he came to bear it. All the sin which is found deep in you. By suffering and dying for you, he revealed God's love by means of revealing and exhausting God's hatred. He who was humbled by his own desire to save us was exalted in due time by his Father who accepted his perfect sacrifice and caused unending rejoicing in heaven. Christ was exalted because all sins were paid for. He was exalted to prove it. He was exalted so that he might exalt us. We are exalted precisely in this, that we know that our sins are forgiven. And it is because God exalts us as sinners, not as saints, who deserve something more than the riffraff of the world, but because he exalts us as sinners, that the world hates us. You often hear, remember, like how the terrorists hate America because we're free. It's baloney. It's just nonsense. They hate us for all sorts of reasons. But the heathen hate us because we are free. They hate us because we are exalted. They hate us because the gospel. What exalts us and what is worth dying for is the gospel that saves us. That is what God died for in order to save us from our sin. But it must be said that he eats with sinners not to minimize our sin. He eats with sinners in order to show us our sin and to direct us to himself who has borne it. 
Sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Jesus wasn't just stretching out his hands, telling them how much he loved them. He was rebuking them and admonishing them and correcting them. And they were willing to hear it because this is the man who forgave them. This is the God who told them that their sins will not land them in eternal punishment. The God who exalts us by forgiving us our sins is the God from whom we are to expect to be humbled. And he does this. He humbles us. He teaches us the law so that we might see and know how lost we are without him. So look around you and examine your life. Look where you have erred. Check your heart and see what desires have led you from heeding his voice and learning it. Acknowledge where you have failed to please God and obey him. Consider your life not just according to how guilty you have felt, but according to God's Ten Commandments, which we aren't always wont to do. Consider the fourth commandment, how you talk back to your parents, how you resent authority. Consider what God says about those who commit adultery, those who divorce without cause. Consider what God says about preserving your neighbor's honor by not bearing false witness or gladly hearing and learning it. And repent. And rejoice that you would be so humbled to be told your sin so that in due time God can exalt you. When we draw near to Jesus, we can expect such treatment. We come to learn. We come to hear our sins and to learn what makes the angels rejoice. What makes the angels rejoice is when we see deeply into our own hearts the depth of what God calls wicked. And when we turn from that and with joy permit God to reveal it so that we can cling to what the angels are always mindful of, that holy sacrifice that took our sins away. And this is how we live humbly before God and before one another when we receive such instruction from him who receives sinners. He receives sinners to forgive us. He invites us into the joy which the angels now know by teaching us that there is nothing in us whatsoever that that has earned it or that can preserve it, but rather it is Jesus who receives sinners. He lays us on his shoulders. He brings us home. And he rejoices. He is our treasure. And he gives us our value. Our treasure gives us our value. Our value is found not in how sufficiently bad we feel for our sin. That is a common temptation. No, our value is found in the blood of Jesus that bought us. And he seeks us like a woman seeks for her lost coin that has no ability to turn in on itself or reflect. It does nothing. The value of a coin isn't found in its self-reflection, but in the price that another places upon it. And this teaches us where repentance is always found. Not in our sparkling efforts, rather in the fact that Christ, even now, lights a lamp 
to search for you, to teach you to search your heart, so that you might come to him where he shines that light, not always on your sin, but upon the mercy and grace that he reveals in himself where he dies for your sin. And he wears the mockery of the world as his highest honor. Jesus receives sinners in order that we might receive the mockery of the world and receive it as gracious humbling from God to teach us always to focus our eyes on the same. This man receives sinners. So we come to him who finds that which is lost and being destroyed. He imprints his image upon us. He lays us over his shoulders. And although the comparison might have been lost on the Pharisees who do not rejoice when one sheep is found or one coin is found, for they were rich, yet we laugh at the comparison that Jesus finds each and every single one of us so precious that he causes his gospel to be preached to you and to me. Here is our glory because here is Christ's. Amen.